Support for this podcast is provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is committed to preserving and expanding educational opportunity for today's students, now more than ever. Welcome to episode six of The Key with IHE. I'm Paul Fain, the host and a news editor at Inside Higher Ed. In this episode, we're taking stock of the unprecedented move by almost all of higher education to go online in a matter of days or weeks. To look back and forward, I spoke with Lindsay McKenzie, a reporter at IHE who covers technology. Lindsay talked about how the pivot to online learning has worked and not worked, including Zoom bombing and privacy problems with conference technology. Lindsay also drew from her reporting to do some scene setting for what to expect in the fall, including the question of whether asynchronous instruction will become more common in higher ed. For more of the inside scoop, I also spoke with Mike Garn, Assistant Vice Chancellor for New Learning Models at the University System of Georgia. Mike talked about hybrid online learning and its potential to help colleges be more agile. I think hybrid is going to turn out to be the sweet spot because we realize we need to have some of that technology in so we can be online when we need to be. And it's going to help people figure out what what's missing uh, right now uh, and be a little bit better prepared for the future. Mike also talked about improving social engagement online and bulking up online advising and faculty office hours. Finally, he discussed the potential for micro-learning in this changed and changing environment. Now on to the conversation. I am speaking with Lindsay McKenzie, our tech reporter. Good to see you, Lindsay. Good to see you too. How are you doing? Doing well. How about you? I'm good. So you've been working hard on our next deep dive special report. Can you talk about what that, the topic is for that one? Yeah, I mean, uh, we started working on this long before the pandemic. The report is taking colleges online and looking at strategies and different ways that colleges are moving online, whether that's full degree programs or alternative credentials or just creating hybrid programs, classes. But obviously, all of that looks completely different now to what it did just a few months ago. Yeah, so you're, you're in the reporting on this as this is happening, you know, going online, you know, takes a, a decent amount of time in planning typically, but not, not this time around. <laughs> it really does. I think we've heard in the past that developing an, a fully online degree can easily cost millions of dollars. It can take months, if not years of planning. What we're seeing right now is instructors moving classes and courses online in a space of days with very little funding and support. And that's, where does that stand now? I mean, it's obviously the pivot to online instruction happened very quickly across of pretty much all of of higher ed, but it's been a a few weeks and and where, where are you seeing things right now? I think it was a huge adjustment for everyone. What I'm hearing is that it's getting a little bit easier, but also the unrest and dissatisfaction from some students is increasing. When you move something online, there are things that are going to go wrong, especially if there's technology that you're not used to using. Don't jinx us here. (laughs) Using technology right now. We are are talking on a video conferencing platform right now, which is what a lot of instructors are using. And uh, as I was mentioning to Paul before we started talking, even for me as someone who, you know, uses technology every day, writes about about technology every day, there's still a learning curve to using these platforms. I think a lot of instructors um, didn't get much training or support in how to set things up. So it was really a trial by fire. 
And I think now we're seeing people get a little bit more comfortable, but still it's a big adjustment and it wasn't going to go smoothly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one of the adjustment issues that caused the most consternation, which you reported on is the, the trend of Zoom bombing. Can you, can you tell the audience? I'm sure quite a few of them are aware of what this is, but what happened there and, and where that stands now? Yeah, this is an issue that has got a huge amount of coverage. Zoom is one of the most popular video conferencing platforms. It has been under a lot of scrutiny recently because so many people are suddenly using it. It wasn't designed for everyone in higher education to be using it and problems have arisen. One of the issues is that instructors, when they were setting up classes, didn't make the classes very secure and that opened up opportunity for people who were not supposed to be in the class to intrude in the class. That is Zoom bombing. Um, Zoom bombers like to cause chaos. Their objective is just to be as disruptive as possible. I did a story a few weeks ago trying to understand how this was happening, you know, where these online trolls were getting the information for these classes. And it seems like a lot of the time it was students inviting people to disrupt their own classes, which is sort of disappointing. <laughs> we thought maybe it might just be random because online meeting IDs can be random numbers. There's a, a thing called Zoom Roulette where you just type in random numbers and see what you get, see where you land. But Zoom bombing seems to have been pretty targeted to higher education in a lot of instances. And it's also a big problem in K-12. But yeah, I thought when I was looking into it, oh, this might be kind of funny. Like this might be just people playing a joke. The instances that I saw were really, really, really horrible. <laughs> it was a lot of racist comments, a lot of people sharing really graphic pornography, a lot of people just sharing really loud, horrible noises, and a lot of people piling on at once, you know, not just one person joining a meeting, but dozens of people and completely shutting it down, making it impossible for the instructor or the meeting host to continue. It's just what faculty members needed as they make a, a very yeah. difficult transition. So, you know, I know Zoom made some improvements. You know, I'm wondering how much of a problem that still remains. And, and I know this is, this is a recurring theme on this podcast, a ridiculously broad question, but what, what are some of the other privacy security issues that you're hearing about now? Yeah, Zoom did make a lot of improvements and a lot of people have praised them for their response. Their CEO wrote a long apology detailing how they were tackling this and that included changing the settings on meetings so that they are a bit more secure. There's also been a big education effort to make people understand how they can secure their meetings. And to be clear, it's not just Zoom that is having issues. It's any video conferencing platform. They all have similar flaws. So we're seeing ongoing issues. It is it seems a little bit less. It's really hard to get a handle on how many incidents there are because the reporting isn't consistent. And a lot of higher education institutions don't shout about when these incidents happen. I actually spoke with an instructor who this happened to and she didn't want to go on record. She felt embarrassed um, that this had happened. You know, she said she's just getting to grips with this technology and didn't want to publicize. She didn't know what she was doing, didn't prevent this. So there's a lot of kind of stuff that's happening that we might not be able to see. But when I was researching the Zoom bombing story, I did 
go into some dark corners of the internet, which was distressing. <laughs> it was yeah, really horrible. A, that's hazard duty. <laughs> it was, it was. I, um, I joined lots of chat groups where people were sharing meeting IDs and planning, coordinating attacks. I was in something like 10 groups on Discord, which is a, a messaging service that a lot of people in the gaming community use. And I was in something like 10 groups and this week all but one had gone. So I think a lot of them have been shut down. And I think a part of it is that instructors, people who are hosting these meetings know what they're doing and they're just not getting as much success. The hit rate is way down. It's not fun when you try to get in meetings all the time and don't get anywhere. But I think another thing we're seeing is that the trolls who were trying to disrupt these classes were really spooked by the FBI and some state attorneys saying this could be a cyber crime. Um, you could get in real trouble for doing this. It's not 100% clear to me that just hijacking a video conference is a crime in itself, but there's a lot of related crimes that you might be charged with, like um, indecent exposure or hate crime. So I think people are, were worried and that has kind of blunted some of the, the worst instances. Well, notch one for the feds. And uh, <laughs> thanks to you for taking one for, for our team by going into those uh, dark corners of the internet. Looking forward is a very difficult thing these days, but you know, in the time between now and when this podcast comes out, I think we'll have some more reporting on the, the issues of synchronous versus asynchronous in, in this distance instruction universe. Um, I wondered if you could give us a little bit about the, the trade-offs between those two modalities and what you see as perhaps taking shape in the summer and fall, um, if we might see a bit more of the asynchronous form. Mm -hmm. I think everyone has to balance openness with security, and that's a difficult calculation to make. If you want to host a public meeting, you want it to make it easy for everyone to attend and participate, but then you increase the security risk. So I think we'll see instructors thinking carefully about whether their sessions really need to be synchronous, whether they have to be able to see the students' faces, whether they have to um, you know, have the students actively responding to questions, whether they could just use a chat messaging instead of you know, the students asking to speak and then you seeing a video of them doing that. There's a lot of boundaries that are being blurred. It's pretty weird to see into a student's bedroom, for example. You know, that's something I think we ha we've kind of skirted over, you know, it's, it's a weird, <laughs> weird situation. There are a lot of security and privacy concerns. If you think about FERPA, student data protection law, you aren't supposed to record students without their permission. And I think that's been happening quite a bit. And There's I saw a lot just, of, there, <laughs> yeah. I'd seen a, an issue where instructors were posting screen grabs of their mm -hmm. students and, you know, in good intention. And that might have been a violation of FERPA, some folks thought as well. Yeah, I think if you aren't familiar with what you should be doing in regard to student data privacy and protection, talk to your IT team. You might have a registrar who's familiar with these issues. Just think about what you're sharing and whether you really need to be sharing it. We'll close on the, the hardest question of all here. You know, as you look to the summer and fall semester, you know, what are some of the issues you're going to be watching most closely in your reporting and, and what should, should listeners be paying attention to in terms of some of the more innovative and early adopter types out there in higher ed? 
I am wondering when we're going to see more questions about quality and assessment. I think a lot of people are understandably getting a pass right now and maybe the quality isn't as high as it could be. That's because we're doing things super fast, lightning fast speed. We're just trying to, you know, triage, <laughs> trying to get things done as quickly as possible. But I think as, as we move on in a couple of months, there will start to be more scrutiny of what are actually students receiving right now? Are they going to meet the learning objectives that they're supposed to meet? Uh, we're going to see a lot of questions around assessment. I think online proctoring is going to become a big discussion again. There's a lot of open questions, really. <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But I am curious about quality. I also think we might see more instructors kind of reverting a little bit to asynchronous instruction. So instead of trying to do everything live, maybe they have the time to record themselves giving a lecture and then the students can do that in their own pace at their own time. That also addresses some concerns with synchronous instruction, which is that if you don't have a good internet connection, it's really hard to listen to something that's happening live. If you're a, a student whose second language is English, maybe captions would be really helpful for you. Maybe you have a disability and you need captions or you need something that's screen reader accessible. With synchronous instruction, that's not always possible. So I think we'll see more questions about the best way to be delivering content. Well, uh, we traffic in open questions on the key here and, uh, and inside of higher ed uh, quite a lot these days, as well as uh, concerns around equity. Um, so Lindsay, thanks so much for, for talking this through with us. We'll be watching to see your special report and your reporting going forward. And for uh, listeners who don't know, I sit about four feet from you in the office, right, right over a little cubicle wall. I can pop over and bother you a lot of times a day. So I've been missing that. So it's been good to at least see your face here on Zoom. I miss that too. Yeah. One right. day we'll go back. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully soon. Well, thanks again, Lindsay. Thank you. Does Inside Higher Ed's wide-ranging coronavirus coverage help you stay informed? Show your support by becoming an insider, our membership program, and enjoy special benefits and offers. Your support helps us continue our journalism and free access to all of our daily news and opinions. To learn more and join, please visit www.insidehighered.com backslash membership. So I'm speaking with Mike Garn from my basement to his house, and it looks like you can't see us here. Um, I can see him on video, but he's got guitars behind him and I have a guitar behind me. So we share that. Yeah. Yeah. We can strum together here. So I, uh, I often say this on the podcast, I, I'm losing track of time, but some period of time ago, not that long ago, you and the University System of Georgia made a pivot to online. And I know you all have been experimenting a lot at the system level with modalities and all sorts of hybrid and uh, competency-based learning approaches. Can you tell me about how you were able to make the pivot from the systems view? Sure. We were probably in a more fortunate position given the size of the system, the way we operate the learning management system. But in our system, we have 26 institutions, 25 of which are on Brightspace by D2L. And we've been on that for about eight years now. So the LMS is connected to our student information system, Banner. And whenever a section is created in Banner, it spawns a, a section in uh, the LMS. 
uh, whether faculty use it or not. So when we got the, uh, the, the charge to move from about probably 60,000 people using online across the system to making it available so 330,000 people could use it, all those sections were there. It really just took uh, some work to make faculty aware of that, how they could get into it. A lot of work on the campuses, helping them maybe put more in if they didn't have it or the basics uh, that they needed to get in to teach with. And our information technology services folks that support that for the system actually created some special reports so that sysadmins on campus could see our faculty checking in or students getting in and identify problems that they might have missed before. In fact, that's those reports are going to be part of our operating process as we move forward. So we were kind of fortunate in that, and we had some good experts at ITS, also our eCampus folks that do our online gen ed courses and e-major programs. Uh, they're at our system level offering that, brought a lot of expertise to the table as well. So looking forward, obviously, quite a few variables, really hard to plan for everybody around everything right now. As you look at the fall and beyond, the potential for hybrid learning opportunities is one that I know a lot of folks are interested in. And we were talking just before I hit record here, uh, we were discussing James Devaney at the University of Michigan and and his piece on the resilient hybrid. Uh, It seems like an issue that you're interested in as well. Yeah, I think that has a lot of promise uh, in terms of our thinking uh, as we move forward. We, you know, focused on if you're using the classroom, this is how you do it. We knew from data, from studies, that hybrid was probably the most effective combination of classroom and and online. Uh, And we had people who were focusing on online because for students that don't have geographic access, that just made the most sense. I think what came out of this, and Devaney's article really pointed it out well, is this ability to have something that's agile and go back and forth. If it's in the classroom today, it can move to totally online tomorrow, or it can blend those uh, as faculty in the situation kind of dictate. So I I have a range of choices available depending on what what happens in the near future. Yeah, I think there's a lot of debate right now uh, with this kind of emergency distance remote teaching that's going on that a lot of people are seeing it's hard. It doesn't work as well as you thought unless you really work on it. Uh, And we're getting a little bit of pushback on should we do this. I think hybrid is going to turn out to be the sweet spot because we realize we need to have some of that technology in so we can be online when we need to be. And it's going to help people figure out what what's missing uh, right now uh, and be a little bit better prepared for the future. Are you optimistic about folks opting in to hybrid on the back end of this crisis? It would be nice if we saw maybe a, a growth in some folks now that they've been forced to sample this to say, oh, I see how that could work and maybe add in a little bit more. That would be great. I think the real push is going to come more from institutional readiness and the need that we uh, be able to do that. So we'll probably see some more training uh, and some more use of it. Gotcha. You know, when we, again, I I feel bad asking about the back end of something we certainly are still in, but even in the early recovery, I think there's a lot of question about what students will, what, what sort of credentials and academic programs will be of value to them, how, how to, to tweak them or, or make sure that they're agile enough 
to provide the right sort of education and training for jobs that we don't really know what they're going to look like. Can you talk a little bit about how you're approaching that challenge? Well, I think one of the things we've learned right now is learning engagement is very important. And, and that's something that if you hadn't been online before, or you'd been do, using this hybrid, that building that engagement for learning and really tracking that is, is a challenge. Uh, and something that it's a new skill set uh, of how do you communicate with students in the right way? How do you design assignments where they can be more engaging? And generate more data about what students are doing so that you know they're on track. Just assigning a paper that's due in two weeks, you've got two weeks you don't know what they're, they're doing or if they're really making progress. So breaking that up into smaller things. I think for the fall, as we look forward, one of the real things we're going to be looking at is how do you do social engagement? How do you really think about, and this is not so much on the instructional side, but how do you provide the other kinds of services, the tutoring, the mentoring, the advising, the financial services, all of those things. I mean, we have campuses that are really great at handling that when a student is on campus, but they really, uh, they're kind of campus forward now. I think, and I hope we'll see more of a pivot to uh, more online services and really thinking of those as being online forward that the student doesn't need to come to campus for things like advising, for things like uh, faculty hours and stuff like that. Not that they shouldn't, not that that's not great, but we're in a situation where that doesn't work for a variety of reasons. I think those are the systems that I'd like to see become more robust uh, and useful, more people trained on how to do that. Things like using CRM, customer relationship management tools, that bridge across mentoring, advising, instruction, so that we get a clearer picture uh, of how students are proceeding through by data rather than just seeing them on campus and catching them in the hallway. Sure, and uh, I'm guessing the systems are already done some work on all of these areas. We've done quite a bit of work. eCampus, our online gen ed program, eCore, they do a good job of building in a lot of uh, touch points with students and they, they use a CRM tool for tracking students and interventions. Uh, and they share a lot of that out to our institutions. So we have a, a value in our system. We have regents advisory committees on a lot of different areas. Uh, we have them both on distance education. We have about 35 of them, but the one on distance education and then our sysadmins for the LMS. These are people that are really in the trenches every day and bringing a lot of that stuff forward we're beginning to evolve the eCore eCampus team with a more of an R&D emphasis as well. They've been testing out and now going into production with some adaptive uh, learning tools. And we're looking at taking that from kind of the hard science math places where it really fits into how do you use adaptive in writing in other areas. So I think all of those will become more tools that people can use to better engage with students, get better lesson level telemetry in terms of data coming out of the courses uh, and things, and give us a lot more to work with in terms of improvement moving forward. You know, I think that the first time we spoke and, and, and a focus of several of our discussions over the years has been competency-based learning and trying to do more breaking learning into smaller pieces of competencies. You know, I, I think a lot of all of us are thinking a lot about the students and the pressures they're facing and how to best meet them where they are through the crisis. 
how's that experience shaping what you're looking at in terms of academic offerings that really meet uh, a student who has very limited time, tough schedules? Well, one of the opportunities that I see in, in the crisis we're going through now is really kind of reframing how we think about the size of the instructional chunks that we work with. You know, we used to think traditional students were under 21, uh, and we know that's not true. We used to think the only working students were adult learners, and we know that's not true anymore. As we've looked at some of our institutions, especially uh, more of our metropolitan ones that have a population of students that maybe didn't have the grades to go somewhere else, didn't have the funds, had too many family commitments, uh, things like that. What we find is, you know, 70% plus of those students are working and they're working on average 30 hours a week or more. You layer on top of that a full course load. On average, it's taking them 10 hours a week to get back and forth for campus. Same thing for work. We asked them, when do you study? When do you find time to, to really do that? And one of the common answers is, well, we study at work. And when we said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, you know, I get a 10 minute break. I get a 20 minute break. I, you know, pull up my stuff uh, and I try and reinforce what I've done, learned, you know, go through my notes or maybe tackle something new. But we don't design instruction in ways that really fit and can be productive in that short of a period. You know, a trend in business, micro learning, that we've been looking at pretty seriously uh, is something that I think has great application and good science behind it too uh, for learning. We tend to think about deep, engaged, you know, reading chapters and things like that. But, you know, we know the human mind loses focus pretty quickly. 10, 12 minutes can lose focus, throw too many things at it. It has a hard time sorting those things out. So there's some real potential there uh, in micro learning. And, you know, we're seeing trends in other places, things like Duolingo, how to learn a language when you're standing in line at, uh, at the supermarket, or what just came out uh, from Hollywood about a week and a half ago, Quibi. Now we're seeing feature-length movies in 10-minute chunks. So I think we're going to see more of that. To me, how that's... How micro are you, are you looking? What's, what, I mean, what, what's the sort of experimental size of micro that you could see higher ed actually given a whirl? I think if we focused on how can you do a meaningful instruction in 15 minutes, kind of hits between, you know, uh, that 10 and 20 minute chunk that people have. And I think thinking that way, not to say you don't have some times when you have to spend a couple hours or more working on papers and that kind of work, but I think there's a lot that we could do in that. So I think that as a challenge, how could you make a learning experience meaningful to go through the whole process of, you know, introducing an idea, getting some cognitive dissonance, getting into the content, kind of assessing that, uh, and then preparing them for the next piece. Could you do that? I think we could. Well, speaking of time, we are about out of time here. Um, and theoretically, I, I hope actually some listeners will learn from this as they do dishes or go to the supermarket with the mask on uh, themselves. So uh, we're in the same spirit here on this podcast. Mike, really appreciate your time. Take care of yourself and uh, keep in touch. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. That's it for this episode of The Key with IHE. Tune in next week when I speak with Eloy Oakley, Chancellor of the California Community Colleges. We talk about how the system, which enrolls more than 2 million students, is planning for the fall and drawing on lessons learned from the last recession. Catch you then. Support for this podcast is provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. 
which is committed to preserving and expanding educational opportunity for today's students, now more than ever.